My name's Helen Keane, and this is Adventures in Space and Tim, a podcast about space travel in general and about Tim Peake's mission to the International Space Station in particular. In this month's show, we celebrate the 25th anniversary of Helen Sharman's flight as the first British astronaut and look at some of the ways life in space has changed since she travelled to the Mir Space Station in 1991. Compared to the mere space station, astronauts say living on the ISS is like living on a three or four star hotel, whereas living on the mere space station was like going on a camping trip. We also look to the future. I talked to materials chemist Dr. Suze Kundu about leaving low Earth orbit and heading to Mars by building ships that have artificial gravity. It's a little bit like when you go on one of those fairground rides and you stand up against the wall and it starts to spin. And the faster it spins, the more you feel like you're being stuck to the wall. And I caught up with Zach Wienersmith, creator of the hugely popular Saturday morning breakfast cereal webcomic and the Festival of Bad Ad Hoc Hypotheses, more on that later, who tells me about some of his favourite outlandish ideas, including the relativistic refrigerator. You know how, like, you make a, say you make some bacon and then you can't eat it, so you could fridge it, but it's not going to be as mm. good, right? But if it didn't experience time, right, then it would still be fresh. So you could accelerate it to, like, 0.99, the speed of light, and then just deaccelerate it later when you want to eat it. It would not have it's like the twin paradox, but for bacon. In 1989, Helen Sharman was a 26-year-old chemist who answered an advertisement to become the first British astronaut. No experience necessary. This was a private initiative to put a Britain in space called Project Juno. The astronaut would train with the Soviet space program, and their place on a Soyuz rocket would be funded in part by corporations like British Aerospace and, less obviously, Interflora. Another part of the project funding came by selling television rights to ITV, which meant that it became a sort of early spacey X-factor, where the astronauts were announced in a live TV final. I asked Helen to tell me a bit about this. They whittled down the applicants to four, and the four of us had been out to Moscow for a couple of weeks to do final medicals and psychological tests, and then brought back to London, and we did not know um, what the decision um, was. Um, We were in an audience... Um, waiting for the result, we had to go endure. I have to say this um, mm. a bit of a, a razzmatazz show, which we all felt terribly uncomfortable about, but um, but had no choice in. And um, yeah, the selection was then made. So Timothy Mace, um, who eventually became a backup, but we didn't know for most of the mission training who was going to be prime and who backup. So Tim was chosen, and I was chosen. Um, but to be quite honest, live on TV, I was, what, 26 years old, something like that. And um, you know, all I was interested in is making sure that I didn't trip up on the way to shake the hands of somebody. Um, <laughs> really weird feeling when you know that the world's watching you and you're not used to that. Um, it's it, quite a lot of pressure to put on, in addition to the, it's sort of a completely different kind of pressure, the, to the, the, the space and the mission, whereas, yeah. Yes, I think nowadays the astronauts are much more prepared for that. So even the rookies are... Uh, given advice by other astronauts, but they're they're trained for all of that. It makes mm. it does just make it a bit easier to cope with, I think. And also, they're not chosen live mm. on Saturday evening mm. TV, which helps. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> At the beginning of the nineties, the Soviet Union was going through a huge amount of change. The space program had always been a peak of achievement for communist Russia, but in nineteen ninety one, the Soviet Union was on the brink of dissolving. Helen Sharman began her training at Star City in the thick of this massive social and political upheaval. I asked her whether this was something she was aware of at the time. Star City is very much cocooned from um, a lot of Russia. Um, and from, Although it's close to Moscow, it is a separate um, town, small military base, and it has its own um, 
perimeter wall with barbed wire and soldiers at the gates. Mm. Um, it's a military base, and so um, it, it is a little bit. It's lovely, isn't it? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it really means starry little town. Um, so yes, it's very, very nice, um, and it, it, is, it is. It is this gorgeous, sort of Narnia kind of world, um, especially in the winter time. It's things things I was very much aware in 1989 when I began my training um, that things were changing um, which I heard a lot about Gorbachev a lot about glasnost and um, perestroika in the west um, words actually that the Russians didn't know about um, so when um, I asked them you know what do you think about perestroika what did glasnost what do you, what do you mean what does that mean? So they were very much Russian words quite clearly they have a meaning in Russia but we gave them a political connotation um, Military people um, often don't like change as much as the rest of the country, and actually, by and large, people don't like change anyway. So it was, um, while the West was clamouring for Russia to change, um, the Russians themselves, yes, they wanted to have a little bit more freedom, but really the change, I think, came very, very quickly and much um, much more rapidly than any of the Russians or anybody else could have, have anticipated, and it created it's a chaos. Russian thing, doesn't it? Rapid change—they're not gradual people, are they? It's just right. Let's have a completely different system. And I think it's—it's it's, it's got a huge country. inertia as a country, mm-hmm. um, and perhaps once once something reaches some sort of critical speed, it's um, it can snowball and yeah. The, the famous thing, or one of the famous things, um, for uh, I think with Russian space programs, all the, the peculiar superstitions and things that surround it. Did you have any favourites or any that you still you still practice today, or was that something you were very aware of when you? Were oh, it's very important to take part in these traditions. Mm. It's part of the whole space culture. And um, there was one that I was exempt from, which was having a pee at the rear offside wheel of the bus on the way to the launch pad. Uh, and that was the, um, the a tradition that Yuri Gagarin started. Thanks, Yuri. And, <laughs> and uh, all, all male astronauts do that one. Um, but um, but yes, there, there are others um, watching a film, the same film that Gagarin watched the night before the launch, for instance, and um, having a sort of final breakfast farewell. What else do we do? Um, we take up something to remind us of the smell of earth and usually it's a bunch of the wormwood scrub grass that's um, growing um, on the steps of Kazakhstan because you don't really get to smell much that's nice and fresh up there so um, yes there's something to remind them of home Um, now so lots of um, there's many nice traditions actually and it's um, we sign the door of the hotel um, that we stay in so kind of a hotel it's a um, place really specifically for people associated with the space program but the place where you actually spend the night before the launch um, the astronauts sign the door and I understand now because of course there's been quite a few astronauts um, that they ran out of room on some of these doors so the doors have been removed and sent to a, a museum um, and new doors have been put in place so that there's a bit of spare place for the new astronauts to sign. Obviously a lot has changed since she visited Mia 25 years ago there has been development, and certainly in terms of technology, communications, mm. and so on, um, uh, the, the way of life in space is, is now, dis, um, compared to the mere space station, the astronauts say living on the ISS is like living on a three or four star hotel, oh. whereas living on the mere space station was like going on a camping trip. And so very much, this, uh, it was a, you go from the rough to the slightly smoother. Um, but now, of course, International Space Station and collaboration with um, the European Space Agency and NASA and other agencies means that um, the Russians themselves have had not just more influence um, by these other places, but they've also been able to influence. I mean, we still we can only use the Soyuz booster rockets to get to the space station now. 
and uh, that's you know really that have been something you would have foreseen in 1989. No, I would never no. have thought um, have thought that. Uh, no, America no. absolutely wouldn't no. have wanted that. Um, but but nonetheless, it's something that's um, it's a very reliable mm. spacecraft. Um, it's, it's not the most comfortable. Um, shuttle was much more comfortable, I understand. Um, both launch and landing, very very gentle kind of profiles. Um, but the Soyuz booster rocket has been around a long time, by and large, very reliable. Um, we've loads of people in space on a Soyuz spacecraft. Um, but yeah, it's, um, it's one that most astronauts are happy to ride. And it is an, it's an exciting ride, not just on the way up, particularly on the way back. That's what I was going to ask you about, actually. The, the experience of, of returning after, experiencing weightlessness, just, just mm. coming back to Earth. I, I've seen footage of people, uh, obviously in the little capsules, and it, and it looks like the most terrifying thing <laughs> I could imagine. So returning to Earth is the best ride ever. Um, it is the most exciting part of the space, of the space flight, even though I think most astronauts are a bit reluctant to come back to Earth, except those that have been in space for a very long time. Um, once you've been up there for four months or more, I think people are really ready to come back and, and meet their families and friends and, and have a social life again. Um, but yes, it's, uh, it's, it's, it is quite a hair-raising ride, really. Um, we fire our booster rockets, uh, booster rockets in the opposite direction, really, so you call them um, uh, re-entry rockets, um, so that they slow us down. And then the atmosphere itself slows us down more. We have about five and a half G of deceleration coming back. So compared to feeling weightless, you, know, you multiply your weight by just over five. That's that's you know, quite a lot. Your arm weighs five times as much as it would have done normally on Earth. So compared to weightlessness, of course, it's infinitely more. But just lifting up your arm, you know, you've got probably about twelve kilos of arm at five G to actually lift up um, and push buttons on the control panel. So yes, it's physically quite demanding. So is, it, is it painful, or is it just a sense of? It is just that sense of tremendous weight and just mm. being dragged down but there's not you're, you're being pushed back yeah. into your seat so if you can imagine a, a sort of normal sitting mm. chair position but then tip that backwards um mm. through 90 degrees so that you're sitting if you like on your back mm. you're lying on your back but with your knees mm. bent up rather like that and so then you're being pushed down into your seat um it's not painful but um it does feel as though um everything is crushing each other so your the weight the weight of your chest for instance pushing down your lungs so breathing is a little bit more difficult um it's um yeah but otherwise the spacesuit fits reasonably well the seat is molded to fit our backs um and you know, it's, you're, you're enjoying looking out of the window as well because there's uh, the plasma, this ionised bits of particles in the air that build up in that layers of the atmosphere, and they glow. So you get this orange, and then a yellow, then a white glow around, it's like a fireball really around the spacecraft. It's not really burning; it's this plasma. Um, and um, eventually, the windows are covered in soot just because of the outside of the spacecraft gets very hot. Um, but then when we've slowed enough through the atmosphere, we can open a drogue chute and then another parachute and then the bigger parachute itself. And that slows us down much more. But the act of opening the chute is very violent. It jerks the spacecraft to the side and then it swings a little bit underneath um, until it settles down. And then hopefully, if you've not got much wind um, during the landing on the, in, you know, in the air, then um, you can just land perpendicularly to the ground and a metre and a half above the ground retro rockets fire just to make that landing a little bit softer. Gosh, yeah, you, sound, you sound very matter of fact about something I think most people would be absolutely terrified. Oh, well, I think we got roasted into spectacles now, <laughs> twenty-five years on. Would you go? Would you go to Mars? 
Mars. I'd go to Mars, but I definitely want to come back. Mm, I want okay. to go on a one-way yes. mission. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think Mars would be an interesting place to go. I mean, well, I did like feeling weightless. Of course, you wouldn't actually feel weightless on Mars, would you? You'd, um, you'd have that um, that gravity again, although it's not exactly the same as on Earth. But uh, nonetheless, just to, to spend time exploring a totally different place like that, um, yeah, what an amazing thing to be able to do. And one of the reasons I planned to go into space was to do things I can't do on Earth. And I don't just mean somersaults and looking out of the window, but actually to see the experiments, to actually do them as a scientist. That's an amazing opportunity. So, looking to the future, many of us hope that the next big advance in human space exploration will be a trip to Mars. With current technology, our robotic missions usually take around eight months to travel from Earth to the Red Planet. I spoke to materials chemist Dr. Suze Kundu about some of the challenges we face if humans are going to get there too. If we were to look at going to Mars, there's lots of things that we need to consider. First things first, it's an awfully long mission. So you're going to have to create a way, ideally, to generate some kind of artificial gravity on your spacecraft. So you can do that by by actually creating something that is constantly circling. It's a little bit like when you go on one of those fairground rides and you stand up against the wall and it starts to spin. And the faster it spins, the more you feel like you're being stuck to the wall. It's generating a sense of artificial gravity there. So the ground can fall away, but you will still remain stuck to the wall. This is kind of what we should be looking to produce um, if we're going to think about going to Mars, because it's going to take an awfully long time. And if we're in a zero gravity environment or low gravity environment for that entire time, our muscles and our bones are going to start deteriorating. And that's going to be a huge problem when we do then encounter gravity again. And we don't know what other health implications Mm. there might be without gravity. So that's one thing. But we'll need appropriate materials to create something that can constantly swoop around and around and around on a reasonably long arm um, for the entire journey there and hopefully back again. Even on the way, we'll need to think about extravehicular um, outfits. So anything that's happening outside of the spacecraft, you're going to have to protect yourself from things like solar radiation, from sheer cold or heat that you may encounter when you're out there. So spacesuits are going to have to be ramped up, I would say, because you're going to be exposed to an awful lot more. So there are ways that our space um, suits already cater for things like that so we've got gold nano layers inside yes. visors that protect your eyes from ultraviolet rays and things like that and any kind of dangerous sort of radiation that you might encounter our space suits are made of things like kevlar now this is important because the tiniest speck of dust may not do much if it's traveling you know if someone throws a, a grain of sand at you it's not going to make much yeah of an impact on you but when that's traveling incredibly quickly which things can potentially do Mm. as they're flying at you or as you're flying through space can cause a lot of damage so things like kevlar are great it's a polymer that has a really high tensile strength it's very Mm. difficult to break and by creating fabrics from this and layering that fabric up we make bulletproof armour here on Earth. So this is already happening with this kevlar this is already happening in space suits so this is great because Mm. it means that we can already protect ourselves from that Suze also thinks that the introduction of aerogels might help with our future spacesuits. Put very simply, these are gels where the liquid part has been replaced by gas, so they're ultra-lightweight synthetic materials. There's potential to use things like aerogel and pyrogel blankets, as you call them, are already available, but they have limitations at the moment because they can be quite dusty. But they're great insulators as well. So if we can create something that's maybe not as dense as Kevlar, if we start to use aerogel, it means that these spacesuits will actually be a little bit lighter, less cumbersome. 
but there's there's the issue of flexibility and stuff mm. as well and yeah. they're not the most flexible suits anyway but that's something to look into once we get there we are obviously going to need a way of creating <laughs> domes that we can live in mm. like biodomes using perhaps condensation things to gather any water that we can there could be very little but if we are going to burn some of the hydrogen that we take mm. with the minimal oxygen that is available out mm. there we can generate water but you don't mm. want to waste that water so mm. if we can find a way of then resplitting that to make hydrogen again mm. it means that we can actually get back from Mars without having to take those materials out there with us which is good we won't have to take fuel but we can generate it once we get there at the moment on the ISS they've got mm. what's looks sort of like a pop-up tent going on at the moment they're trialing a kind of um inflatable habitation and the pop-up tent idea is not mad it's actually quite a valid idea you know not just for glastonbury potentially for any possible festival (laughs) so um the idea of that isn't too far-fetched we could use things like shape memory metal to Mm. pop open Mm. set structures of materials that are going to, again, have to be pretty tough, but light as well. But there are ways that we could functionalise the materials that we do use. There's a lot of work going into um, organic semiconductors and things like that mm. and LEDs. So there, there is a potential that we can create sort of solar panels from a lot of the materials that we would use. So they wouldn't just be functioning as a protective atmosphere mm. for us, protective environment. They wouldn't just be creating a tent. Mm. They could actually be working for us Mm. as well, helping us generate some electricity by capturing some solar radiation. Um, Ideally, you'd probably want to coat them with some kind of self-cleaning material so that you wouldn't have to worry about the dusty... Really, smart material. It would just do everything. But then again, see, that would need further development because although you don't particularly want kind of rainwater and stuff like that Mm. on your or covering your Mm. biodomes... Mm what you might want to do is create something that can actually get rid of the dust. Now, at the moment, we haven't produced a self-cleaning glass that can get rid of dust, mm. which is why, although we have self-cleaning glass on the Shard in London, we can't have it on the Burj Khalifa mm. in the Middle East because mm. it just doesn't create enough rain, mm. and rain is a vital component of the self-cleaning factor of yes. that. So if we can find a way of, you know, creating something that could propel very small dry particles as well or find a way of yeah for different environments yeah a little bit like that actually yes exactly that there are places on earth that are maybe more similar so if you're actually developing materials for mars you could also be developing materials for those places as well yeah yeah definitely wow zach wienersmith is the creator of the saturday morning breakfast cereal webcomic but he also runs a series of live events called the festival of bad ad hoc hypotheses or bar fest where scientists compete by presenting unusual ideas for super expensive science experiments. I met up with him when he brought Barfest to London earlier this year and asked him about some of his favourite outlandish space ideas. Uh, well, our, our, our opening speaker, yeah. she, she's got a couple of theories, and one of them is about how we could solve global warming by moving Earth away from the sun a little bit and get the cool things off a little. Um, uh, but there's, there's another, there's a speaker tonight who's proposing a we could stop the Earth from rotating. Uh, what I love about his ideas, it's you know everyone's talking about with all the bad stuff that would happen if the Earth stopped rotating. You know, in movies and stuff, uh, like you know, and there are some bad sides. Like you could only there live in this negatives. narrow strip around yeah. the middle, and there'd be perpetual night on one side. So, but uh, there's other stuff like if you want to create a physics model of the Earth, uh, it's really annoying to do it if it's spinning because it gets this slight centrifugal. So kind of, but it's not a perfect sphere, mm. you know. So when you're modeling it, it's not as accurate. So that would be a benefit. Uh, uh, I actually had one 
uh, I wanted to do myself. Um, mine was going to be that you could do what I call the relativistic refrigerator. You know how like you make a say you make some bacon and then you can't eat it, so you could fridge it, but it's not going to be as mm -hmm. good, right? But if it didn't experience time, right, then it would still be fresh. So you could accelerate it to like 0.99 the speed of light, and then just deaccelerate it later when you want to eat it. It would not have it's like the twin paradox, but for bacon. Um, and then you could, um, and so it's like per, per slice of bacon, it would only be like a trillion dollars, but there'd probably be some economies of scale once you, uh, yeah, once you get you it just, rolling. Yeah, everyone so. likes bacon. Well. Yeah. Do you have a favorite weird and wonderful um, yeah. space story or space fact that you've encountered? Yeah, so yeah, yeah. One of my favorite things was this thing Buzz Aldrin proposed, which was to put a space base on one of the moons of Mars. And the idea is just that, um, moons of Mars are very small, so the escape velocity is so low. You, I think on Phobos, the, the mm. escape velocity is low enough that you could drive a motorcycle up a ramp and then escape mm. from the moon, uh, which is cool too, except that you'd probably crash on Mars, which, which is actually awesome. Um, Way to go. Motorcycle off Phobos yeah. into Mars. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, so the neat thing is from an energy perspective, uh, it would be cheaper to get cargo, say, from Phobos to Earth than from Luna, from, from Earth's moon to Earth, which is insane. Um, there's actually, uh, Buzz Aldrin proposed another idea called an Aldrin cycler. Modest. Well, he didn't call it that. <laughs> but anyway, so he, he had this idea that came to be called the Aldrin cycler, which was that there are these orbits between, I, I guess it's two celestial entities that are essentially like a free orbit back and forth. So you sort of visualize like a, just a loop between two things moving in space that kind of perpetually runs. And, and costs either no or low energy to keep something looping once it's at the right uh, velocity, right? So the idea is you could just put a bunch of stuff into this orbit, like a container, say, and then every time it comes back through, you just put the stuff you want to ship, and then you boost it, and then it goes off for very little energy. You could have a shipping system, say, between Earth and Mars. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah, so that would be really fun. And Or maybe a human transportation. I wouldn't be going. I don't want to go. <laughs> you don't want to go? Um, you, yeah, that's my other question I ask everybody, <laughs> actually. Would you go into space? No, because... I mean, I would, well, I, I would, I would be okay being like the 50 millionth person to go into space on the space transport. Um, yeah, so I wouldn't want to be the first person. And also, like, Elon Musk is going into space and he's probably going to be like Tyrant of Mars. You he's, know what I, mean? he's, I love his quote about, I would like to die on Mars, just not on impact. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. So I'm pretty I guess sure, you feel the same. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I feel like he's probably going to start like, uh, Muskelvania or something yeah. over there, and it's going to be Musk running. World. Musk World. Oh yeah. Musk World. Musk World. We're... There's a new life for you in the Musk World colonies. <laughs> exactly. And yes. so I just don't want to. I don't know if I want to be part of Musk World. Mm. Um, and I also don't want to fight Musk it's World. Already Musk World. Well, we're yeah. Just living it. You know? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so um, maybe I'll go to another planet or something. I don't know where Jeff Bezos is going. He seems a little more mellow. So, yeah. yeah. Of course. Because part of the reason that he wants us to go there is to get away from the machines, the rise of the That's machines. right, yeah. So we have to escape to Mars, and we may yeah. not have a choice. We may have to go to Mars. I, I kind of feel like if software is trying to kill us, you can't escape to Mars. No, from, you know. probably knows Mars is there. Yeah. It's not going to be like, oh, really? Yeah. Where have they gone? Yeah, I don't know. I, I there's a certain. It's going to get on in Carter. It's going to go. There are other. <laughs> there are other planets in this solar system. Check yeah. other planets. The humans may have escaped. And yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah, exactly. So that's no good. It may be that our first step before we head out to other planets away from the robot overlords will be to monetize objects closer to us in space. So, what about the tricky issue of asteroid mining? You're from Texas. I'm from Texas, which uh, loves a bit of. 
Earth's resources. Yes. So yeah, you, yep. you love all that in Texas. Would you would you take that Texan spirit out out beyond Earth's atmosphere into oh, the asteroids? Absolutely. I, uh, one yes. of the debates about asteroid mining is like you have these sort of pristine early solar system entities that could tell us information, but like I feel like a Texan would just bring back the gold or whatever, mm. so they wouldn't worry about those pesky environmental problems. But uh, <laughs> I've talked to a bunch of people about this, and the, the consensus I got was that among people who study this. With asteroid mining, the goal should be to set up a settlement mm. in uh, the asteroid belt because um, the, 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 the cost of, of getting something into space that could bring back whatever is desirable from asteroids is probably too high. And there's also this risk, although I, I couldn't get anyone I've talked about asteroid mining to, to agree with me, so maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think I am, which is, like, it's a little unnerving the idea that you'd have a giant piece of metal orbiting the Earth that someone could deorbit and would be hard to... You know, like it'd be like dropping a giant nuclear weapon. It's, yeah. Yeah. It's like, I mean, it would be cool. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be awesome. Maybe Musk World would be there too. I don't know. Yeah, Musk, <laughs> Musk World. Before they lose spaceships. Uh, yes. Before they before, lose that Before technology. they kind of go, no, it's all a bit computery. <laughs> yeah. No, get rid of that. You know. Oh, that's cool. they'd be the Amish of space. Like they in, would be. In, in a thousand oh, years, it'll be the, the Muskites, it'll be the Amish of space. They're sort of bonnets and they're, and they're, <laughs> and they're sort of plain. plain. They're all dressed like Elon Musk, is what they're <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Yeah, probably. probably. It's a vision. It's, it's a vision. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's one possible dystopia yeah. in the future of many. But whether the initial steps forward are made by international communities or billionaire space enthusiasts, the collaborations we've seen between European nations, Russia and the US and private contractors on the International Space Station can offer a great deal of hope for the future. Helen Sharman again. The Chinese um, government, the Chinese space agency is investing very heavily in human spaceflight at the moment um, and has stated um, their desire not only to have um, their own space station, but to have um, a post on the moon. Um, And it would be great to be able to bring China into the international collaborative efforts. And and that will be, I think, um, a a good um, opener um, to many other political efforts with China and other countries as well. So space-faring nations, um, it's it's about much more than just having astronauts doing science experiments. I think the the impact goes far Mm. and wide. Adventures in Space and Tim is made in association with the UK Space Agency and the International Centre for Life, Newcastle. The theme music is Modular Space by Martin Molin of Swedish band Wintergarten. This episode was presented by Helen Keane and written and produced by Helen Keane and Miriam Underhill, a.k.a. A Wolf Tea Production.